Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for the week of September 3, 2023. The KCB Zoom line that we have been using for most meetings is now ACB compliant. This will permit us to request ACB hosts for our meetings and events if needed. This will also mean that the Zoom room will not be open until 10 to 15 minutes prior to a meeting. When joining a meeting, you may receive a message that the host has not yet opened the room. You will not be able to hear or talk to others until the host opens the room. If you have questions about this change, call us at 502-895-4598. Also, most KCB committee meetings, as well as all savvy board and committee meetings, will be held on the second Zoom line. That number is 669-900-6833, and the meeting ID is 846-4742-6493. The passcode is 975-865. Committees that will move to this new line are the GLCB EAT Committee, which meets the first Sunday of the month at 7 p.m., Debbie Dethridge Chair, the KCB Convention Planning Committee on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m., Carla Rushevel Chair, the Scholarship and Tech Grant Committee on Thursdays, Terry Turlaw Chair, and the KCB PR Membership Committee on the second Wednesday at 8 p.m., Rick Bogus Chair. Check with the committee chairs for specific meeting dates and times, or call the KCB office for more information. The South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind in Bowling Green holds its social hour each Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. Central Time. Some weeks they have a speaker, other weeks it's open conversation. The Zoom number is 669-900-6833, and the Code is 763-689-4411. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision invites everyone to attend its September in-person Low Vision Support Group meetings on Monday, September 11, and Monday, September 25. The meeting time is from 1 to 2.30 p.m., and the location is United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville. KCCLV's September business meeting is on Wednesday, September 6, and its virtual low vision support group meeting is on Wednesday, September 20, both at 8 p.m. on the KCB Zoom line. The Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will hold its September meeting on Monday, September 11 at 7 p.m. Their conference number is 605-475-4700. The code is 155619. All are welcome to attend. For its September meeting, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired will not have a Zoom meeting. Instead, it will have a picnic at Legion Park in Owensboro from noon to 2 p.m. Central Time on Tuesday, September 12. Request GRITS transportation by calling Cheryl Lott at 270-686-8689 by September 7. Request sub-sandwiches by calling Rick Bogus by September 9 at 270-684-4418.
KCB's Next Generation chapter will hold its September meeting on Zoom on Thursday, September 14 at 8 p.m. The Eastern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its next in-person meeting on Saturday, September 16 at 11 a.m. To find out more information about the meeting place and to request transportation, call Ronnie Patrick, President, at 606-671-0226. The Tri-State Library users invite you to read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, by Judy Bloom, and then come to the TOU Book Club and Business Meeting on Saturday morning, September 16, at 11 a.m. on the Zoom line. Share your thoughts about the book, help select the book we'll read for October, and take part in planning future TLU activities. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites you, no matter where you live, to attend our September virtual roundabouts on Zoom. Dates are September 8, September 22, and September 29. The time is 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern. The roundabout on September 15 will be a hybrid bingo, and doors will open at UCHM in Louisville at 4.30 p.m. We'll have dinner at 5, $6 per person, and we'll hope to have some time to share tech tips after dinner. We'll join the Zoom line at 6.30 and have announcements and play bingo until 8.30. In-person attendees should plan to make return rides between 8.45 and 9 p.m. Order carryouts, sign up for dinner, and let us know if you have any specific tech requests by calling the KCB office at 502-895-4598 in advance. The Braille Readers Theater from the American Printing House for the Blind presented two live performances of an original play entitled This Is Their Story, This Is Their Song on Friday, August 25, and Saturday, August 26. The play was written and directed by B.T. Kimbrough, a very talented musician and a member of the Kentucky School for the Blind alumni. We interview BT on page two so you can hear how the play came to be. BT also tells us a little about his background in music. His piano teacher at the school was Bill Moots, whom he speaks about in the interview. Bill Moots was an outstanding instructor who later became the music critic for the Louisville Courier Journal newspaper. Then on page three, we bring you selected clips from the play, including two of the hymns sung by the performers and the audience and a beautiful a cappella Stephen Foster song performed as a duet with B.T. Kimbrough and Barbara Henning. The piano accompaniments were all played by B.T. We hope you enjoy page two and page three. Sound Prince comes to you each week on ACB Media One. Our broadcast times are Sunday at 8 p.m., Monday at 8 a.m., Tuesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., Wednesday at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., Thursday at 10 p.m., Friday at 10 a.m., 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Listen to ACB Media One using the ACB Link app on your iPhone or on your Alexa device by asking her to open ACB Media and then choosing number one when prompted. You can also listen on your Victor Reader stream and on the KCB information line by calling 773-572-6318. For more information about Soundprints and other ways to listen, 
Call the KCB office at 502-895-4598. Page two. Um, sound friends with me this week is BT Kimbrough. BT has been involved in many, many different things over the years. He, since coming back to Louisville, uh, has participated in the Braille Readers Theater at the American Printing House for the Blind. And they do a production of some type of play uh, each year. They did not have plays during COVID. Um, but I think the first one that they did was, I don't know what, BT, around uh, 2013 or so, they did um, they did the Miracle Worker as their first one. And I don't remember what year that was. But they've done a lot of stuff. 2013, 2012, something like that. I think that was yeah. the first play, Carly. Yeah, I believe it was. And um, you know, they've done a lot of different things. This year, they did a really different type of thing than they've done in the past. This was not a play that was already written and available someplace. This was a play that was written, directed. Um, the whole thing was produced um, by... The Printing House and um, and by B.T. Kimbrough. And B.T. wrote the play, uh, directed the play. All the production was um, here. It was, it was nothing that was pre-set or written that this is how it will be done. So B.T. is with us today um, to tell us about that process, uh, how it, how it existed and how it came along. Um, and so uh, we're going to, hear from him. Also, BT, I'd like for you to tell us, because some people listening probably don't know about your music background and why you're so appropriate to have done this type of thing. So just give us a quick overview of that. Um, I take it for granted everybody knows, but everybody doesn't always know. I'll just let you take it from here and include a little bit of that background. Right. Well, Fanny Crosby's been before me since I was a young person growing up in the Baptist church, and uh, many of her hymns were in the hymn book. And I found out a couple of things about Fanny that interested me and made me want to know more about her. I found out she was a blind person. And I knew a few blind people when I was a kid, and I wondered, what kind of blind person was she? And I also found out that on her grave, when she died at the age of 95, was a very simple Honorific. It said, Aunt Fanny, she hath done what she could. And there's two ways to look at that phrase. It can be very dismissive. You know, you can say of a little older person, well, they did the best they could. So is that what was meant by that? Or if you really pursue that uh, phrase and you really live it out, if somebody can say she or he did what they could, what they're saying basically is, they basically, you couldn't ask any more of anybody. If you identified the things you could do and you did them all your life, what more could you ask of anybody? So I always wondered, gee, which kind of person was Fanny? Was she the kind of person you could dismiss? Or was she somebody who challenged herself with a phrase like that and actually lived it out? Spoiler alert, I found her to be the second kind. But anyway, my uh, degrees are in music, a uh, pipe organ, actually, uh, from the University of Louisville. 
but uh, after getting those degrees, I discovered that I, I, I felt interest in a lot of things, some of them not musical, and so I have pursued a great many lives you know, <laughs> over my 80 now years. Uh, one of them was as editor of Dialogue magazine, which ceased publication in 2019. And as editor of Dialogue, I wrote about a lot of blind people. I got the chance to interview them. I got the chance to receive articles from them and very often had the chance to ask, well, you know, how do you cope as a blind person? What are your favorite technological fixes that help you do what you do? Uh, and, and people let you do what you do, or have you been under pressure to sit life out, as very many of us are? Uh, and so... To make a long story short, when uh, Dialogue ceased publication, I was back in local by then. I was working with the Printing House Braille Readers Theater. That's the group that puts on the plays that Carla mentioned. I got to be in a number of plays and got to see some of how uh, plays were put together, how the dialogue is written, and how characters are created. So when it came time for the Printing House Museum to close for a little bit of reworking, and they'll be reopening under a new name in 18 months or two years or so. There, there was some interest in uh, one final performance and production that would celebrate a good deal of what the Braille Readers Theater has been. It's made a lot of opportunities available to a lot of um, us blind folks in Louisville who were frustrated, would like to have had the opportunity to act in plays earlier in our lives. It emphasizes uh, the use of Braille scripts and the reading of the material on stage. I think that was partly done to show people that uh, Braille is no mean medium and that you can read competitively rapidly uh, with it and that it can enable you to do the things that print enables uh, print readers to do. So we're casting about for a thing that would be a, uh, a worthwhile and appropriate uh, way to celebrate uh, what this organization has been. Um, at this moment, uh, when it's going to refocus, the museum's going to refocus, and uh, who knows what kind of organizations will be created out of it. Fanny Crosby was the subject of one of their early programs. They did a, uh, a, a program about her life and many of her hymns in 2011. And some of us thought, well, why not a play? And that would give me a chance to uh, find out a little further about Fanny. I had never written a play, didn't know if I could do it. But I'm not the sort of person who says, well, I haven't done it, therefore I'm sure I can't. I'm the sort of person who says, gee, maybe I could. Let me tinker with this and see if I can. During the pandemic, took the opportunity to read some books about Fanny Crosby. Uh, that was not a time when performers could perform. Uh, a lot of events were canceled during uh, the pandemic. It was a great time to read. I read three or four books about Fanny Crosby. I uh, rifled through a lot of online sources uh, in addition and I, I got a lot of details and a lot of information about the kind of person that she was uh, over and above you know, what you're going to hear when you say a person wrote a bunch of hymns and they were celebrated as a, a blind person who didn't just sit around, who actually um, got up and acted and did. So uh, I said, I'll be willing to try to write a play if you think that's a worthwhile subject. Katie Carpenter, who is the driving force behind the Braille Readers Theater, the printing house, uh, the official role in which she works, she's called a museum educator. She's a great many things to a lot of us. She's about to retire, incidentally, and 
it's kind of hard to look at, at what kind of world they'll be without Katie Carpenter, who has made so many opportunities available to so uh, many people. But uh, she deserves a program of her own at some point. So I sat down and, and I, I asked a couple of actors that I have worked with and have really, really enjoyed working with, uh, Barbara Henning and Terry Turlaw, and I said, I'm, I have a, um, a, a play in mind that would take two people who knew each other well and were to some degree best friends, um, Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer, and Phoebe Palmer Knapp, with whom she wrote uh, the hymn Blessed Assurance, perhaps uh, Fanny's most famous hymn, although there are a lot of them and some, um, quite a few of them are pretty famous. But it's known that they wrote that together on one occasion, and it's known that Fanny and Phoebe saw each other on a number of other occasions, knew each other for decades, and uh, and were pretty good friends. So I said to these actresses, uh, look, I have in mind uh, to bring Fanny to life using um, one of her good friends, Phoebe, who is a very different kind of person from her. And so what would you think of taking these two roles and helping me bring them to life? And they were interested in it, and believe me, they did a lot to help bring them to life. Because it's one thing to put words in the mouths of people, and, and it's another thing to hear them spoken by people who are used to trying to help bring people to life on stage. And when you hear them spoken, and when you talk to those people about the, the way they feel about the characters as they're bringing them to life, you learn a great deal about what the characters would have said and what they wouldn't have said. We had a number of workshop uh, situations where I showed them pieces of the play and they read them for me. And um, sometimes we talked about them. And sometimes we didn't really have to because sometimes just hearing them read made me understood changes that needed to be made. The play evolved tremendously over a period of about 10 months from a, a very skeletal beginning um, to a play that actually, as we editors like to say, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, now, and is a play that gives a personal encounter uh, with Fanny Crosby using a, an awful lot of the filters and focuses that come from having her in the company of a best friend. Fanny and Phoebe were very different people. Fanny was not a materialist. She couldn't hold on to money because she so quickly gave it away to people that she thought needed it more. Phoebe Palmer Knapp was one of the wealthy people uh, in the New York area. She might not have been part of the 400, but she certainly was from a family that had a lot of money. Her husband, uh, Joseph Knapp, was the first president of the New York Life Assurance Society. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, I don't absolutely know this to be true, but I believe that when Fanny sat down to write words to Phoebe's melody that ultimately became Blessed Assurance, I think she had very much in mind the fact that uh, Phoebe's husband, Joseph Knapp, was in the life assurance uh, insurance business. And I, I think the use of the word assurance in that title is no coincidence. I, I, I think that was intended um, to be uh, kind of a personal statement. I, you know, I think that Fanny thought that uh, the best life insurance was to have your life right with God. And I, I think she felt like uh, uh, God took care of people even if they couldn't pay the premiums. But I, I think she also felt that it was very inclusive for the Naps, for her to uh, make a hymn called 
blessed assurance because they knew a lot about the uh, both both kinds of the life assurance business, the religious kind and the secular kind. So we worked on the play from, oh, I guess, really last November uh, until we gave the performance in late August. And uh, that's a long time to work on anything, but uh, believe me, it was still being changed right up until the last minute. And I suppose if we were to continue to work on it, it would continue to evolve. Because Fanny and to some degree her friend Phoebe are people that you get to know gradually as you live with them. And it has taken me quite a while to celebrate Fanny in a thorough way, in a complete way, because there are many aspects her personality, she had many abilities. My first curiosity was, okay, what was her basic way to cope as a blind person? The answer is easy. She did it by memory. Uh, she Braille wasn't available when she was in school at the New York Institute for the Blind, which was one of the first schools for the blind. Braille was slow to come to this country. Fanny was well out of school before Braille began to be taught, and I don't believe New York Point was a real issue uh, in the school while she was there from about 1835. She later became a teacher and remained in the school for about 20 years. And I don't think New York Point was an issue either. But for one reason or another, uh, Fanny did not rely on tactile reading. She had a wonderfully retentive memory. And she used uh, memory to the extent that she memorized all the hymns as she was making them up in her head. And she could actually hold on to several hymns at once and dictate them several secretaries at once to get them put on paper. She was a really hard case when it came to uh, the use of memory. She always uh, made it clear she thought that sighted people wasted their memory and didn't develop it because they leaned on the crutches of pencil and paper so much. She's uh, known to have said at one point that uh, the use of account books uh, to put down figures to keep track of them and the use of notebooks to put things down and instead of keeping them in your head, the use of all that uh, print book material is destructive of what she called the books of the mind. And uh, she always maintained that uh, sighted people uh, shouldn't uh, glorify her memory, that they could all develop uh, their own good memories if they just take the trouble to. Um, so memory was her thing. That's that's. Uh, what enabled her to do what she did. And, of course, the thing about memory that uh, some people overlook is that when, once you have a thing in your memory, you can analyze it, you can think about it, you can it can become yours, uh, you can dominate it with analytical um, practices that aren't really available to you if you're having to look for it on paper and just look at one line at a time. So uh, that's a general introduction to the kind of uh, uh, person that, the Fanny was uh, certainly was a real challenge to bring to life that kind of person on a stage in about an hour and a half. And uh, since she was involved in so much music, we had a lot of music uh, that we could use to bring her to life. She didn't only write sacred songs. She wrote uh, secular songs. One of the teachers at the New York School of the Blind was a man named George Root, who uh, was drawn to Fanny because of her musical talent and began to play his melodies for her and began to ask her, why don't would you consider writing some words for this or that melody? I don't have words for them. And she wrote words to quite a number of them. She did not write the words to his most famous 
song, which is the battle cry of freedom. Uh, but she did write a number of words uh, to melodies that were published by uh, George Root, and we used a couple of them uh, in the play because the, her secular song is not so well known as her hymns, and it, it was a great pleasure uh, to hear Barbara as Fanny uh, singing fragments from some of those songs. She she brought those to life beautifully. It was a wonderful performance. I don't know how your Friday night performance went. Adam and I went to the Saturday afternoon performance, and you know there was a very nice crowd there. The play was was really good. It couldn't be held at the printing house like previous plays had been because the construction is going on for the new addition to APH. So it was held at Crescent Hill Presbyterian Church, which is in pretty close proximity to the printing house, just east of the printing house, out toward um, a community, an area called St. Matthew's. It was very good. Tell us about the just the production of that, the, the, the process. And you know how you got um, everybody there. You had a you had kind of a, a choir, um, a small four or five people that were there to service the choir and that led the congregation and singing uh, some of the hymns and so on. So just give us a little look into that. I don't think you all were able to do as many rehearsals as normally would have been done for a play. Well, certainly in the space, we were very limited. We, we got in the space for one dress rehearsal. Um, the church opened its doors to us graciously, but our ability to have time in there was limited by the fact that they, they have a busy church schedule of their own. Mm-hmm. So we had the chorus with us in there for one dress rehearsal. Our uh, uh, total of uh, choral singers was eight, uh, counting myself and the two actresses. And we wanted enough uh, choral volunteers to encourage the people gathered there to sing these hymns. Part of how you get to know a person who's written hymns is you sing some of their hymns, and we sang four of them. And I want to mention the names of our volunteers because they they really did help us get a warm musical response from our audience. Uh, We had uh, choral assistance from Deanna Scoggins, uh, Ian Bray, Kathy Signier, Fred Otto, Patty Johnson, and of course Terry Turlaw and uh, Barbara Henning, our two actresses, and I boomed along on the bass. So with eight <laughs> people already singing, it's a little easier to invite people. Will you please join us in singing? The production um, was done with a lot of uh, rehearsals in small rooms. In the beginning, we'd we'd get the uh, uh, actresses and me together in small rooms, and we'd we'd read pieces of the play, and we would record our reading and. Later in listening to the recordings, I could see things that needed to be changed. I could see things that worked and needed to be maybe amplified. And I could see things that absolutely didn't work and didn't belong. And uh, so the recording was a tremendous tool in, uh, in in getting the play shaped up so that we could cover the ground in less than an hour and a half. You don't want to keep people sitting for much longer than an hour and a half. Um, because no matter how interesting your subject is, you reach a point where it's it's not going to get through. So you you know you, that's a, that's six or seven thousand words in an hour and a half. So they they have to be you can't waste them. And so we we did a lot of filing away of stuff that um, that we could do without. 
and uh, a lot of adding things because because we needed, uh, for instance, at the end, without going too much into the plot, uh, there, there is a podcaster who is told that he has as his guest the original uh, Fanny Crosby and Phoebe Palmer Nap. He doesn't believe it. And uh, so his whole point is to try to prove these people are actually uh, imposters. As, as time goes along, he finds himself, in spite of himself, believing more and more uh, in these people because they know so much and they emote uh, in such a way as, as, to, as to really bring to life his vision of those people. And so by the end, he's feeling a lot less skeptical than he was in the beginning. By the end, he's feeling uh, very drawn to these people. So I needed a moment that would draw, draw them together. And I found a song uh, that Fanny Crosby wrote using a, a melody by Stephen Foster. And I don't think that everybody knows that there was a musical connection of that sort between uh, Fanny and Stephen Foster. And so I have the podcaster uh, and Fanny singing the Stephen Foster hymn uh, she made it into a hymn. It would, I think when he published the melody, he had no particular notion whether it would be secular or sacred. It's called Why Will You Wander? And so we, we made this uh, singing of this duet um, a real sort of emotional point uh, toward the ending of the play. But we didn't add that until close to the very end. So some of the features uh, really just got in under the the skin of their teeth, just as we were about to uh, be ready to perform the play itself. When you wrote the play, did you record as you went, or did you write it in Braille? How did you how did you organize all of that? I worked in uh, Microsoft Word, uh, and I had the Duxbury uh, translation software um, at my elbow, so that I could make hard copy for the two actresses. Um, both of whom are good Braille readers. And um, as a matter of fact, I got to the point where I had to actually keep separate versions going because the Braille translation sometimes left way too many spaces. So once I got some of the spaces out, I didn't want the Word uh, Microsoft Word file to keep adding extra spaces. So every time I'd make a change, I'd make the change in Duxbury and I'd make the change in the Microsoft Word file. And <laughs> it was pretty hard to keep all those versions together before we got through. Oh, I'm sure. You had, of course, we had Braille and large print programs. And uh, I will have to say, BT, that that Braille program was miles and miles ahead of some of the previous programs uh, that have been produced for the Braille Readers Theater. Your production of that Braille was excellent. The printing house folks said they didn't have available uh, an embosser right now um, to to the organization. I... uh, still have an embosser that I uh, was given in my uh, days of working for enabling technologies during my life down in Florida, one of my many lives, and it's still <laughs> working like a tank. I may be jinxing it by saying that, but I was able to use it for the Braille that uh, I and the other actors used, and uh, I, I used it for the Braille programs and was happy to do that. Now, BT, talk to us just a little bit about you didn't just suddenly drop in to U of L and do pipe organ. You had done all this great, you know, piano music and stuff uh, in high school. So just give us a little brief uh, look at that, because you know when the when when we were at KSB, you were always the best uh, in the 
in the music program. So just give other people a little tiny glimpse into that. I started uh, piano with Bill Moots when I was eight years old. I think I was eight. And, uh, at, you know, at that time, I was uh, down at the at the far end on recitals. Uh, you know, the, the first ones who played are the ones who just started to play. Right. And so uh, those first couple of years, I was the first one on the recital and mighty glad to get out of there. Um, yeah. and so, uh, I remember uh, being I, first, boy. <laughs> yeah. All the older kids playing. <laughs> well, we worked with Braille Music, and uh, Braille Music is demanding. It takes a longer to learn Braille music than it does to learn Braille literary notation because there's so many more signs. There are all the signs for uh, all of the notes with an, a different sign for each kind of note. Mm-hmm. And then there are so many oct- other signs that give you the information you have to have to fill out the score. What octave uh, is the note in? And there are, you have to learn all the rest you have to learn the sign that tells you that what you see now is not music, it's a word, um, because many composers have dynamic markings in their music. So you have to learn all these signs that begin uh, and end these various different modes for music. So it takes a long time before you can look at a page of Braille music and have some quick notion of how that sounds. And uh, starting from when I was eight uh, until through the uh, uh, junior year in high school. I had Braille piano pieces to learn uh, every year. And uh, Mr. Boots expected you to sit down at the piano and learn those. And if he didn't hear you uh, at the piano in your practice time, um, learning those notes, because as you learn them, you would have to play them over and over. He he got pretty perturbed. Uh, and, yes. Uh, his being perturbed can be an experience. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, it's another story. His voice uh, <laughs> was a, a voice that I have in my head and always will. And yep. it, was a de- it was a deep voice and a very uh, a firm, a very attention-getting voice. And, uh, <laughs> yes. then, you know, uh, this is another, another story, but I, yes, I, told him, I told him one time that I, I was interested in being in radio. And he said to me, well, young man, I'm not sure you have the voice to be in radio. And he doesn't know it. And even when I told him the story, he didn't get it. But it was his voice that made me assure myself one way or another, I was going to find a way to find that voice. It, it, you know, it wasn't his telling me that he wasn't sure I had it that motivated me. It was the fact that he had it. And I thought, well, he, he has it. He got it some way. I'm going to find the place to get that voice. So that was right. a tremendous motivator. But uh, uh, I... Uh, really got interested in the organ as a teenager because, well, partly because uh, every Sunday when I went to the Baptist church in the morning and the night, you know, we heard a lot of organ music, but also partly because E. Power Biggs um, was on the radio uh, playing the pipe organ in those days in the early 50s, and I, I got was really fascinated by hearing E. Power Biggs play Bach on the organ. I wanted to learn how to do that. Mr. Boots couldn't believe it when I told him I was interested in Bach. He said, but you've always hated Bach. I said, well, um, this is a different Bach, and uh, th- this Bach I love. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the background in music was good with Mr. Moots as that teacher. I mean, those of us that were lucky enough to have him 
as a teacher. Didn't always like it, but he was an excellent teacher. And whether you wanted to or not, you got motivated to learn um, the the music. So um, <laughs> anyway, I just thought it would be interesting to take a quick look there. Well, BT, the, the play was absolutely wonderful. We're going to have some of the music. I'm not exactly sure what's going to fit into the program yet, but I know that um, the piece with you and Barbara, and, well, of course, we'll have Blessed Assurance in there. Carla, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure to celebrate what the museum has made possible uh, over these years uh, and express the hope that, as you just said, that some of these things will reemerge when the dot experience is a reality in a couple of years because it's meant a lot to the community of people who can come. It's meant a lot to the people who can be performers, who can be on the doing end, as Fanny always used to say, be up and doing rather than just sitting uh, and waiting. Page three. I want to welcome everybody out on a kind of a hot and a stormy day. Uh, my name is Mike Hudson. I'm director of the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind down the street. And I want to welcome you to our 2023 edition of Braille Readers Theatre. This year, an original play written and directed by B.T. Kimbrough. Now, if you'll do us all a favor, I would ask that everybody turn off or silence their cell phones. I will give you a minute to do that. Actually, I'm not going to give you a minute, but... Um, so, uh, so tonight... You lucky few are going to be part of something that has never been performed or experienced in public anywhere by anybody, a live audience. You know, art doesn't just spring fully formed from the mind of a genius. Art is frequently hard work. And it's, it's our perspective that creating art and participating in art and surrounding ourselves with, with art is a vital part of the human experience. And the arts are for everyone. Now, most of our performers today are also veterans of Braille Readers Theater Productions, and some of them have been with us all the way back to the beginning in 2011. And we want to... Uh, thank Crescent Hill Presbyterian for hosting us this year while our building is being expanded and renovated. And I hope you're all excited as we are about what will become the DOT experience here in a couple of years. So before we begin, I want to say a special word of thanks to our museum educator, Katie Carpenter. this year, but from the beginning, BRT would have been impossible without Spinner Baby. So, Fanny J. Crosby was born on March 24, 1820. She wrote thousands of what she called hymn poems, which were set to music by dozens of composers and published in popular hymnals over a period of 50, 50 years. She was one of the first Americans to be educated at a school for the blind, and she was pretty famous in her day. Now, if 2020 had gone just a little bit better, we might have done this program three years ago. But well, heck, here we are, right? 
BT has crafted a bit more personal encounter with Fanny. Sometimes facts can only take us so far, and from there, imagination must supply. So without further ado, I give you our original presentation, Fanny and Phoebe, their story, their song, featuring special guest appearances by the original Phoebe Palmer Neff and Francis Jane Fanny Crosby. Oh, for the love of Mike, talk about a cheap gimmick. Johnny, where did you get the notion to pull such a crazy stunt as that? I thought you were going to hire actors to read the quotes. That's what we always do, right? And now you've got us pretending to have the real Fanny and Phoebe? Who's going to buy that? The funny thing is, I'd love to come face to face with a real Fanny Crosby. What do you mean, why? I've come to respect her while I was researching this stuff, and there's a bunch of questions I'd really like to ask. <laughs> oh, don't worry, I'll ask them all right, but I bet they won't know the answer. <laughs> all right, we'll find out. Yeah. Okay, at least tell me where you found your great pretenders. Yeah, I know you like to go to those hymn sings. They're pretty good sometimes. All night? How the heck did you stay awake? Oh, you couldn't take your eyes off of me. <laughs> Right on the front row, were they? Uh, yeah, it's great costumes. All right, I guess I get the picture. <clears throat> Look, you've been producing for me for 10 years, and you never fell for a stunt like this, but I guess it's the first time or everything. Well, go ahead, bring it in. You win this round, but believe me, you haven't heard the last of this, and neither have they. Original Fatty and Phoebe, indeed. Go out and you get them award-winning research and lots of quotes to make it authentic and they go for a bonehead stunt like this. I mean, I tell you, it's enough to make you want to think about walking away and going back and giving, oh, hello, ladies. Nice costumes. Hey, you know, you move pretty well for a couple of 200-year-olds. I am not 200. I didn't think so. I was not born until 1839. Oh, I am not a year over. I am not a day over 184. <laughs> All right, so you looked up Phoebe's birth year. Nice girl. Nice girl. Uh, young man. In my day, people were more respectful to their elders. Big pardon, man, but I, I, I bet I'm at least 20 years older than either one of you people, and I'm well under 100, believe you me. All right, full disclosure, if you ladies were really from back in the 1800s, <laughs> I would have to explain that we are here to record a podcast, which is something like a radio program, because you wouldn't know what those things were. Uh, I think you do know what's going on, so I'm just going to say this. I don't know who you are. I am Francis Jane Crosby, and I was invited to be here by your nice young assistant, uh, Jonathan. Jonathan? Jonathanism. Well, I can accept that you persuaded Johnny. Uh, Jonathan. Mercy, Fanny's mother. Excuse me, young man. So, Fanny's Excuse mother... Excuse me, Mr. Master of Ceremonies, or whatever you are. Look, lady, I'm trying to do a show over here. I'll, uh, I'll call on you when it's time. But okay? you're leaving out something important. Are you aware that Fanny... Well, 
that I never blamed the poor man who made the mistake with my eyes. I always said that his mistake was a huge blessing in disguise because without the loss of sight, I wouldn't have experienced the wonderful things that happened to me over my 95 years. Nicely played. Hey, look, maybe you ladies aren't amateurs after all. My, my, so skeptical. Isn't it conceivable that Phoebe and I are telling you what we genuinely remember from real Sound life? Don't get excited. You'll get your chance, believe me. As I was saying, Fanny's mother, Mercy, now a widow. When the child was 15, Fanny's mother discovered the New York school. Actually, I was 14 when mother found the school. She left home to a I was 15 by then. Almost from that moment, she began to encounter an amazing series of opportunities to learn, grow, and achieve. She navigated many a transition along the way, reinventing herself as student, teacher, musician, poet, housewife, hymnist, mission worker, and much traveled public speaker. But uh, first things first, before we talk any more about her. Well, all of my hymns were like little children to me as I set them adrift in the world never knowing which ones would find love and acceptance. I'm glad to know that to God be the glory eventually found its home. We have placed two of the verses that Thank Crosby wrote for To God Be Glory in your show notes. And we invite you to join. Uh, we are two volunteers and we sing those two verses
I will have tea served to us. Would you like some refreshment while we make music? No, thank you. I am longing to hear your new composition. Oh, I'm longing to hear how the melody strikes you. <laughs>
Then you didn't mention your musical connection to Foster. Why in the world not? And give you another chance to tease me about showing off. <laughs> have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, 
and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.